This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is going remote, at least this week so far. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, though, in a slightly different location, Dr. Nirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? I'm very good, Captain. As you said, we are recording remote. I'm in Campbelltown. You're in Barrel. Yeah. And we're using technology. The miracle of modern technology. We're recording this on Zoom, Fool, so we may well have some audio dropouts or some lagging and stuff like that. So please bear with us. We're doing our bit for social distancing and trying out the technology, which frankly is very good. Um, but we're going to record a decent amount of time here, and we may well have problems with, with the audio from time to time. So if it's bad, terrible, let us know. But hopefully you can bear with us. Um, I noticed Doc, a whole lot of podcasts I'm listening to are uh, doing versions of this. There's kind of the Conversations podcast, now calling off Conversations from Home. Uh, NPR's Planet Money are recording under Dunas at the moment, apparently, for sound quality. Uh, we don't quite have that, and frankly, I can't spend 45 minutes under a Duna. So uh, we'll do what we can and, and see how we go with the, with the quality, if that works for everybody. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's get on with it, mate. We've got plenty to talk about. Um, Oh my God. I, I wish I could stop talking about coronavirus, but I guess that's what everyone wants to talk about. That's what's going on. There is almost no business news that isn't uh, corona-related right now, at least no big news. And I guess that's logical, right? Because there is so much going on. Um, I, I want to. We'll talk about a couple of capital raisings. We'll talk about the state of the airlines again, and not just our local airlines, but some news from around the rest of the world. We will talk about, maybe I've buried the lead here, bank dividends, deferrals, or cancellations. Um, that's breaking news from last night. We're recording this Wednesday because Good Friday is on Friday, so we're getting everything ahead by a day to make sure you, our loyal and very valued listeners, have something good to listen to while you're enjoying your Easter break at, at home, of course. Um, we're talking about NAB closing some branches, mate, and whether or not this is actually cost-cutting by disguise. And speaking of banks, we'll talk about Fitch and the ratings agency downgrading bank debt. And, of course, mate, we will, as we always do, get into the full mailbag. What do you reckon? I love it. Let's do it. Let's go. We have heaps of questions. You'll be excited to know, mate. Most of the questions this week come from Instagram, which I know will make you feel really pleased. I am I'm thrilled. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> there was at least one hashtag, get doc on Insta. So I'm keeping that alive. I'm desperately like a flickering flame in the wind. I'm cupping my hands around it, trying to keep that concept going, but we'll see how we go. All right, mate. Coronavirus is around again. One of our uh, one of our erstwhile colleagues, Joe Mega, uh, mentioned the other day, we're not allowed to talk stocks anymore with Joe because he runs our funds management business and we have a, a Chinese wall between those businesses. But he mentioned the other day, and this number will be different by the time our listeners listen to this because the market is doing what markets do, particularly recently, that we're up 19% from our lows. Despite being still off massively from the highs, the market really doesn't know whether it's coming or going, mate. And there's so much corporate news, so many kind of reasons to believe and reasons to fear. Um, there's just phenomenal amounts of volatility. We started, the um, again, we're recording this on Wednesday. Tuesday, we started up 2.5% and finished down 06 I think. I mean, that's a 3.1% swing in a single day. I wish that was unusual, but that's kind of what we're facing right now, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's kind of not surprising, though, at the same time. I mean, if we think about it, as you said, right, one of the things that markets hate the most is uncertainty, and we have that in like <laughs> in space. There's, 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 there's a pandemic of uncertainty right now going on. Oh, right? there you go. Well, you, could, you should trademark that one, mate. That, that, that could take off. But there's a real pandemic going on and there's an uncertain <laughs> pandemic going on which go hand in hand. There's an yep. economic pandemic as well evolving along with that. There's a pandemic Man. of various thoughts, right? So, I mean, the market's really, I mean, you know, the, they're, they're happy someday because there's some news that makes them mm. happy and then they're 
um, you know, sad <laughs> the next moment because there's some, again, news. So yeah, the volatility yeah. doesn't surprise me. It is really gut, gut-wrenching in that sense. You know, you're up, right. down, yeah. and you're up and you're down and you're down. And yeah, but I mean, I mean, I've just, you know, at the back of my mind, I've just assumed that this is going to continue for some time like yeah. this for a while. And, uh, and because it's going to continue for some time like this, well, you know, um, until we see, we start seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, it's mm. just going to continue like this. You know, that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm making any comments about the directionality. The directionally, maybe it goes up because you know the market is maybe uh, market is maybe pricing all the uh, all the uncertainty, or all all the bad news, in, in, or most of the bad news maybe. But uh, I, I mean, you know, until until we see you know, some positivity or, or, or at least lasting positivity. I mean, you no, know, we are going to have this, oh, you know, these many people died somewhere or, you know, this thing maybe works, oh, this thing doesn't work and that sort of thing. So <laughs> um, I think that's the norm now. <laughs> and it's interesting too. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend the theory, mate. I've said before on this podcast, I'm pretty sure, I've said this to, to our team um, behind closed doors. It seems to me like there's much more, the market seems to be more, What's the right word? It tends to whipsaw more. Uh, it tends to be more extreme in its movements. I've noticed over the last couple of earnings seasons, maybe three, so every six months, companies report their earnings. We call that earnings season. The past three or so earnings seasons, the moves on results have seemed to be, and maybe I'm just, maybe it's all anecdotal, maybe it's not actually true, but seem to have been more extreme than in the past. You know, big, big movements of plus and minus 10, 20, 30% on earnings. And to some degree, while the pandemic is absolutely unprecedented, and maybe I'm drawing too long a bow here, but this feels to me like kind of the extension of that. There's just that sense of patience and long-term thinking and business focus seems to have gone out the window and everyone feels compelled to respond really aggressively, really, you know, extremely to the news that comes out, as you say, both positive and negative. And this is, obvi- this is undoubtedly negative, right? Like I'm not suggesting that the market's overreacting to a pandemic in and of itself, but the, the, sh- the size of the movements feels like an extension of the kind of last couple of years worth of earnings seasons that we've seen. Yeah, like, I mean, I think part of the issue is, um, like, you know, like, I mean, I, I get the earnings volatility because part of the earnings volatility, at least in my mind, and again, this is just, a, you know, just like any other theory, which I have no basis for, uh, <laughs> for, for, uh, for uh, even, you know, back testing. Maybe I should back you're, test. You're among friends, mate. Me either. I got no idea. I, I'm just speculating. But, um, but, well, we're speculating, but but one of the reasons I think I've, the last couple of earnings seasons have been very volatile is you know with interest rates low, markets being high, mm. you know if the multiples are high, then disappointment results in you know sharp downward movement, right? Yeah. Because yeah. You, know, you didn't you didn't match expectation. Right? It's all about basically what the expectation was and how the expectation was matched yeah. or not. And and of course there's the future guidance element that. Um, that comes into play. With, <laughs> yeah. So I can justify some of that. With the, um, it's a, with do you the, think it's more than in the past? Though? Does it feel to you like it's more issue than it has been? Maybe the market's just doing a better job in the short term of kind of pulling forward some of that future expectation, but then selling off hard when it's not met. Or am I am I trying too hard? To no, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. But I, I'm saying that I think that that observation seems to be uh, seems to be you know, what I have seen as well. But what I'm saying is that maybe mm. the reason is that over time, like, you know, if you think about it, over the past decade, the market has basically gone up, right? So there's been no mm. major dislocation for the past decade. Interest rates have been, you know, they were going up, then they went down. So they've been basically historic lows. Multiples have expanded because of those reasons. There's been pretty good growth for a decade. Mm. 
and and that pushed multiples up. But then as 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 multiples keep going up, I think um, there's this element of oh, you know, maybe this doesn't last forever because you yeah. know there's some um, you know disappointment in the results, and that results in you know larger and larger pullbacks because you mm-hmm. can't justify that multiple. I, I'm uh, with this one. I think what has happening is. I, I think it starts off, it, it, I think it's the difficulty of quantifying the overall impact. Like, I think the near-term impact is clear to everyone, right? I mean, we all see what is the near-term Im- impact. What is not clear is the second order. I mean, you know, like there's a, one of our, our former colleagues, Morgan Housel, right? He had an interesting tweet. He said that, you know, it's, it's, interest, it's easy to say that you're going to hibernate stuff and bring back stuff to life after stuff, but you know, businesses are not bears, right? They don't hibernate. (laughs) So so I I thought it was really prescient in the sense that you can't just say that, forget, you just can't say, or you can't think. I mean, it's a very noble way of thinking that for six months Mm -hmm. or a year, we will just assume that that time just never happened. Cryo freeze everything and then kind of unfreeze everything and go back to the way it was. Yeah, but it doesn't work. Life doesn't work. I mean, life doesn't work that way, right? I mean, yeah. six months of life is gone for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So businesses are, in, in, a, in a way, in my view, uh, a reflection of people. And, and the reflection of people that work in the business, right? And, you know, their lives are tied together. You know, a lot of things are tied together. So therefore, you can't, you can't hibernate. Six months don't disappear. So six months, that's a real impact. Now, you can try to soften the impact, and it's not yet clear what that impact is going to be. And then, of course, the flow on impacts, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's short-term impact, then there's going to be longer-term impact. There are going to be some changes. We don't know what, how the social distancing rules, for example, are going to evolve, right? You know, we're already talking about some countries have started experimenting in Europe, for example, with opening. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Right? Yeah. So, so I think uh, Denmark and Austria are the two that, that have done some experiments. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what happens after the experiment and what changes you need to make, right? On the other hand, it looked like Japan had got everything under control, but now Tokyo is in lockdown. Yeah, and right? soccer too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the thing is that we are in this continuously evolving environment, and I think that makes it really hard. I mean, all the future earnings, you know, what is the future earning? Is there's a so I mean, you know, people are changing maybe their discount rates or whatever you you know if you want to think about it in wonky terms, then. It's the future earnings, the discounts on the future earnings, the potential mm-hmm. growth rate, and all of those things result in a lot of uncertainty. So I think part of it is, is I think, justified. Um, and, I mean, very few people actually invest, right, thinking, you know, in the 10th year, this is what the business is going to look like. Yeah, and right. From the year 10 to year 20, this is how the business is going to grow. Well, a lot of investors and people who are putting money in the market are just not thinking that way. So yeah. that also has an impact, right? I mean, if everybody's thinking about the next three years, well, that's, that's going to have an impact on the share price. You can have an edge by thinking about the next year 10 to year 20. Um, but in the meantime, you're going to have the volatility for years zero to year three. And to be clear, we're saying we should be that former group, right? We're saying we should be thinking longer term. As, as fools, as investors, we're saying to our, to our members, to our listeners, to our readers, hey, just you, know, you have an edge here by looking further out than the market is. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so that's, and the reason I'm pointing this out is, in a way, as, as say, the next couple of years, if, if, you know, the next couple of years you have this volatility, it's an advantage to, it's an advantage to someone who can think from, from, you know, year 10 to year 20, right? But then, you know, you have to also 
assume that the first three years are kind of, well, yeah, I'm not going to get anything out of the first <laughs> 10 years because yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about that time frame. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, if you want to make money slowly but surely, and, uh, well, not, there's nothing sure I should rephrase that. <laughs> Good idea. Or higher probability of success, but, you know, yeah. with long-term compounding, then you can't, you know, you can't be expecting to make money like immediately right now, right? I mean, that's the that's the push and pull, right? That's there in the market. Mm, so, mm, mm. anyway, that's my theory. I just made it up. I like it. Let's move on to well. Speaking of theories, I, I, you, I know you're going to have a bit of a rant here. So, listeners, brace yourselves. Doc's going to have a bit of a rant. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's talk travel, one of your favorite sectors I know. Uh, a couple of big bits of news this week. The first that came out was Flight Center and its recapitalization. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and also some bad news from a major international airline and from the International Airlines Federation Rover about, frankly, how tough the travel industry is doing it. So let's talk Flight Center in the first instance. Um, 96.1%, I think, is the number uh, they're increasing their share count by, if I remember correctly, effectively doubling the number of shares. Now, let's just break this down a little bit for some newer listeners or listeners who aren't as familiar with the investing concepts here. Flight Center is in a situation where, because of the coronavirus and the government changes, it's basically bleeding a whole lot of cash. It has effectively laid off a heap of workers like... Oh, this is a phenomenal number. $1.9 billion they're going to save annualized, right? For all the cost savings they've, they've made. Their ongoing cost base is now only going to be $65 million a month. When you think about those those numbers, that is just a phenomenal, I mean, $1.9 billion, call it $150 million a month among friends. So effectively, they're cutting their cost base by three quarters, again, among friends, close enough to. Um, yet they're still going to have enough cash to make it through. And they've had to say, well, okay, banks probably aren't going to give us any more money because they're not going to trust that we can pay it back. Our only options are to either go broke, just go out of business, or to go back to shareholders and say, hey, can we have a bit more cash just to tide us through? And because of the amount of cash they need and because of the share price that was prevailing before the capital raising was done, they did the maths and worked out how many shares they were going to have to issue, new equity effectively, to get the money they needed. Is that, is that a reasonable summary of kind of the, the, the layman's terms of what we where we are now or how we got to this point? Yeah, I, I think so. So, I mean, I'll put it slightly differently. So basically, um, because there's no travel right now, well, tra- Flight Center has, was left with a bunch of costs and no money. Yep, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing coming in, everything going out. You can't do that yeah, forever. So lots of money going out, lots of obligation, <laughs> no money coming in. Yep. And uh, that's a, you know, and then if your cash then the amount of cash they had was not sufficient enough to let them ride, say, for the next six to eight months or whatever that you would need to ride, right? right? right. So basically insufficient cash, some debt, which has also covenants, where covenant basically means obligations Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, you need to maintain a certain amount of earnings level to justify Mm -hmm. uh, keeping that debt without the debt holder, um, you know, coming back and knocking at your door, right? So, (laughs) So basically, you know, well, so they went into suspension, and they needed to raise capital. Now, it's an interesting thing to, in my mind. It's interesting because, in a way, one way to think about flight side is basically right now a distressed asset. It's distressed mm-hmm. because it has no earnings power right now. <laughs> it, has, yeah. it has zero earnings power. I mean, we can say that. Well, with no, no sales power, though. I mean, it's, it has it's, no sales it's power. Bad, right? <laughs> and if, yeah. if, if nothing is done, it's going to go broke. Yeah. Right? 
Right. It's right. now if you think about the business too. I mean, you know, here's the stark thing to think about, right? If you if you think about it, I was just looking this up. Number it it its diluted earnings per share in 2016 was two dollars forty two cents, according to you know Capital IQ. Uh, last twelve months, its diluted total earnings uh, earnings per share was a dollar ninety eight cents. Mm-hmm. So in last four years, five years, it's basically gone backwards or flat. Mm-hmm. That's you know if you're more very generous. That was with the previous base of share count, <laughs> right? Right. So earnings per share is basically total earn- net earnings divided by you know the total number of shares on uh, um, mm-hmm. shares out, right? I mean, if the net earnings was say two hundred fifty million dollars uh, in twenty sixteen, uh, or in in last twelve months it was two hundred million dollars, then that is now going to be divided by almost double because they're basically effectively double, right? Between friends, you can call. So so the earnings basically have have halved. Yep. The previous earnings. Yep. Now, you know what? I call this distressed asset because um, who would be funding this? I mean, basically, most people who play in distressed assets would be the people who would be funding it. But in this case, it looks like it's the existing shareholders who are funding it, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is an interesting experiment. It's in institutional point. shareholders and then current shareholders being offered uh, the opportunity to top up their shareholding. Yeah. Yeah. But, but <laughs> what I think is interesting is the psychology here, right? Because the psychology is that if nobody, if none of the existing shareholders participate in this rights offer where you're basically saying, well, we'll give you X number of shares for the number of shares you hold, then the company would go broke because it would not, right. or it would have to raise it further diluted. So it's basically the current holders assuming that, well, I'm going to, you know, if I don't do anything, yeah, I'm going to lose even more. <laughs> so therefore what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw some more money at this thing <laughs> to keep it afloat. Uh, so I, no, that's I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and use an analogy here, mate. It, it would be kind of like if, if all of a sudden you realized that the house you lived in, the roof was, was leaking, the tiles were broken, uh, and it was going to cost you 50 grand to fix. You, you either have to say, I'll put some money on the table to fix it, or I'll let the house get destroyed by the rain. You kind of have no, there's no, there's no good choice, right? You're in a situation where you're, you're either kind of saying, I mean, like, I mean like, ex- absorb more damage, potentially total damage. So you don't put the money up, the house gets flooded, uh, everything rots, and, and you have to walk away. Or you say, well, okay, I guess I've got to do something here and put up some money to fix the roof. Yeah, it was a perfect analogy with only I'll make a small change, right? The house was worth half a million dollars. You had to actually put half a million dollars to fix the house. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Exactly. <laughs> this is a yeah, very expensive yeah, yeah. fix, right? Yeah, or I mean, in, in a, I'm just saying from an investor psychology, like if you think yes, of the housing yeah. is a great one, right? If I have a half a million dollar house and that's completely broke, I could just, yeah. you know, if I could offload it for half a million yes. to someone else, I could actually buy another house for half a million, hopefully, which is better. Yeah. Right, but the investors basically. So it's probably not even worth half a million, right? I mean, in reality. Well, that's the problem, right? So you paid half a million for it. If you don't fix it, it's worth nothing. And it's you worth can't nothing. Really sell, you, you can't sell it for half a million. So you really, yeah. it really is that Hobson's choice, right? You got, you've either got to say yeah. the house will the house will be worth nothing because it's effectively in, in the flight center case just to bring it back to the company. If it's broke, no one's going to pay anything for the shares. So there's that. Yeah. Maybe maybe someone pays you know fifty million dollars for the brand or something at some at some level, but effectively zero. Um, yeah. Or you have to put in effectively the price of the house to save it. It is really a, it, it's a terrible option once a company gets into this situation. Yeah, which is why I say, I say you know it's basically like a distressed yeah. asset at that point, right? Right. So right. Uh, yep. I, I'm so, so the, so the interesting thing to think about here is basically now now that we know that the share price or the the share count has doubled, effectively mm-hmm. now we need to really think about well where the shares you know what the earnings are going to look like or the net earnings are going to look mm-hmm. like um, five years from now, for example, and then mm-hmm. you know hope that you're going to make some money on it. The interesting thing, though, is there are a couple of wrinkles here, right? So, I mean, 
just to stay afloat for the time being, the company, as you said, is making drastic cuts, right? Yeah. So this is not going to be the share, the flight center of the past. This is going to be a right. very different flight center. Is it going to be because forty percent of its Australian stores, fifty percent globally, something like that? I mean, it's a, it's a massively downsized business. Yeah. So it's going to be a very former pale self of yeah. you know, it's going to be a pale version of the former self. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, so I mean, it's not a very pretty position to be, but maybe in, in, <laughs> in net, net, maybe for existing shareholders, probably this is, you know, the best outcome that was possible. Um, yeah, but not pretty. And that, and that is that is the question, right? A flight center was a $45 stock at one point. It was $7.70 or something before the capital raising was put through. We can assume that had it come out of suspension without that capital being raised, the shares would have fallen to two or three bucks. Yeah. So it really was for those shareholders a question of, you know, which which terrible outcome do you want? Do you want to be diluted and, and, and see what you can get out of it? Or do you want to not do it, try and sell your shares for two or three bucks? And fr- frankly, you've got to find someone who wants to buy them in the first place, right? Which is the other problem. And as you yeah. say, without the cash, it's on a it's on a one way ticket to hell unless unless for some miraculous reason the travel restrictions are lifted well and truly before anyone expects them to be and yeah somehow have enough cash to make it through. Yeah, like I'll repeat one only my, my my main criticism with you know typically if somebody would think of or would have in the past thought of flight center as like a blue chip company, paying like you know three four four percent yield fully franked you know, but I think there is there's something here, and, and the. How does that big a company get into this big a trouble, right? Okay, I get it that this is an unforeseen event, but you know, it's, yeah. it also calls for how capital allocation really works and this propensity to distribute every bit of cash that you generate so quickly back um, to, you know, essentially back to investors. Even in some cases, there are companies that are actually raising money to pay back dividends, right? So yeah. retaining. And the reason I point this out is, you know, there are like, you know, as I pointed out in the chat, there's a company like, for example, Expedia, right? Expedia is seven, eight billion dollar company, not its so share price. US, US travel company, not dissimilar yeah, to flights, but only online. Yeah, it's it's an OTA, so it's it's more like Webjet, I guess, in that sense. Right, right. Um, then flights and it doesn't have physical stores, right? But its share price has been hammered, mm. but it can go, in my view, another six months, eight months, ten months without really having to dilute shareholders. And, and, that, and I think the distinction is very important in terms of the share price fall versus the, um, versus the uh, I, I guess, the capital raise, right? Because when you do a 100% dilution, you have effectively now you have to work really, really hard to get that earnings go, going back, right? Because you effectively they're now 2x the number of owners, right? Whereas if you didn't have that, you know, a company like Expedia would be able to much quicker you know, the, the ability to bounce back when things go back will be much faster because they'll be in a much better position, at least from a earnings per share basis, uh, to bounce back. And I think, you know, there's a capital allocation. You know, I've seen this with, I've said this on the podcast before, even a company like Cochlear, I mean, how do you land up in that situation? It's just bad capital management, right? You know, if you can't keep some cash on your balance sheet for a big enough company, then you're doing something wrong by the shareholders, in my view, at least. Um, you know, the sheer number of uh, these, you know, so-called blue chip companies raising, running to raise cash, you know, it, it is really, in my view, a yellow flag. And there needs to be, at least across the board, some soul searching as to why and how you manage businesses. Not withstanding, I mean, there's a, some, some crisis or the other happens, right? I mean, there's a corona crisis, we have the GFC, none of them would be predictable. But if, if a crisis happens every 10 years, I mean, you've got to be prepared for it. And if there's a crisis, every time there's a crisis, you're going to dilute by 100%, well, there's a problem. 
right? Then we can't be long-term investors in these businesses because you're just being poor shepherds of the capital. So I think there's something, I think there's some soul searching that needs to happen at the board view, at the board level, across at least the larger companies. You know, one would think that the larger companies are better placed to deal with these things. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't share the same, I share the directional view you have. I don't share the, the I don't share to the same degree you do or with the same, with the same vehemence. I think uh, to some degree, cochlear shareholders may actually still be better off having received the cash from the company over the last 10, 20 years and then having to stump up or some of them stump up for an amount of cash now versus them keeping that cash on the books for 20 years at zero return, right? If I'm a, if I'm a long-term cochlear shareholder and I've had dividends that were, I don't know, double what they otherwise might have been for 10 years, and I use that money to generate other returns, and I've got to give some of that back this year because of an unexpected court loss. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that shells are actually are underserved for that. If we say all capital raisings are unequivocally bad, that's a, that's a different question. And I'm separating flights in here because it's a very different scenario, right? But if I've, if as cochlear, I'm saying I'm going to pay out all these earnings, maximise shareholder returns for X years before it, then I have to ask for a little bit of that back, and I'm able to raise that at a decent price arguably that's actually very good capital management, right? As long as you know or believe or can expect that the capital markets are open to you to raise that capital, there, it, there's, no, there's no inherent need for that cash to stay on the books in and of itself. It's only problematic if you can't raise the money or the money's got to be raised at too low a price, right? Which is, is absolutely the flight center question. So I'm separating those two examples. But I think in Cochlear's case, you know, if I, it's like the home loan offset, right? If I, if I don't carry the cash, but I know I've got an offset account that I can tap if I want to, yeah, I've got to pay the initial amount if it comes to it, but if I can use that money for something else in the meantime, there, there's a, there's a, I think there's an argument to say that it's, it's, not, it's not whether there's cash or not, it's the ability to raise that cash if and when you need it at an appropriate price that I think I would separate those two scenarios. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't agree with that. You know, again, to me, it, it, you know, I, th- I think the definition of blue chip would be stability. And if you have to do dilutive cap, cap raise, I think that's, that's just detrimental in my view. So anyways, I, I just think um, it's a ding in my book. Um, again, I, I think the thing is that, you know, like uh, probably Cochlear got away easy because it's still expensive stock, right? For, right. for its level of growth, right? So I mean, maybe it got yeah. away easy, maybe it didn't, maybe it lucked out, right? Um, you know, again, I think there's, there's some amount of prudence, you know, it's like about 40 X, uh, 40 times earnings shares, right? For company growing at what, 10, 10% earnings growth per year. Um, that's expensive, right? So, I mean, you know, maybe it got away easy. But is that, 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 that by definition is the time you want to be issuing shares, though. I mean, to your point, if that is the case, if you, well, can, if you well, can raise cash at 40 times earnings, that's what you want to do. Yeah, well, but, you know, like it was 60 times earnings or 70 times earnings, right? Maybe it would have been, you know, I, I think there's, there's an element of luck there that, that you are, you know, you're hoping, right? I mean, the capital markets technically are open, right? But if you, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that it, it is this riding your, your business too close to the edge um, is, is, you know, you don't have to do that. If you have a well-run blue chip company um, that is going to sustainably grow, you don't really need to have to do that, right? I mean, if you have to do that, then that, in my mind, is just, just, just too risky. Then it's not blue chip anymore in my view. But anyways, that's my view. Fair enough. Mate, let's move on from flight center for a second to more bad news, unfortunately, in the, uh, in the travel space. And we'll, we'll try and get through this a little bit quickly because we've spent a bit of time on flight. Um, Lufthansa came out, was it this morning or yesterday, basically saying it's making some permanent capacity cut. So it's not just, not just you know, for temporarily kind of cutting flight um, sectors or vectors, whatever they call it. It is literally, I think, either giving back planes or not taking as many planes or something. It is, it is planning for both a much reduced and a longer recovery timeframe, perhaps than others might have expected. At the same time, the IATA, the Australian International 
airline something something, um, came out and said basically there's 25 million jobs at risk globally and the airlines can't, simply can't afford to pay refunds for the flights that we've all booked that we're no longer, no longer taking. There's more pain to come for airlines. Yeah, like, I mean, um, we had some trips booked over, um, uh, like, basically, you're supposed to be going maybe tomorrow somewhere or day after. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, they're going nowhere. And I've not received any <laughs> refund from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. So, so, so Qantas has basically given me a, um, a travel credit, <laughs> which is sitting somewhere. Uh, and, and my wife had actually a ticket on Expedia, which uh, is sitting at a, at a credit somewhere, which you don't know where. <laughs> so, so, yeah, no have yeah, nobody has the money to give. Yeah, I thought the Lufthansa news was interesting because what Lufthansa is saying is that it's going to take years, you know, something like three years to actually get back to current levels. Now, this is just forecasting on their part, right? But um, yeah, yeah. they could be absolutely wrong about the forecast, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, in a way, what my wife would say that, you know, just imagine all the people who have been locked, locked at homes for like, you know, six months, <laughs> three, three yeah. to six months. The moment, <laughs> you, the moment you, it's like, you know, it's like released from jail. <laughs> the moment you open up, you know, everybody wants to go to the restaurants and everybody, and yeah. in a way, you know, people would want to travel, you know, especially those people who have, uh, who have not been able to spend the money and were earning, they would actually right, be able right. to spend. So there's that pent up demand in that sense so you know that's the both sides of the coin here but but what i think is interesting about the lufthansa news in my view is you the the planning for airlines right i mean you you lease airlines there's a process to it you know because and you buy airlines you put an order it takes it takes like years and months right 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 no like boeing if it's making airlines, it just can't produce. It's not like producing a toy, right? It's like <laughs> they produce X number of planes every month, which is like X is a really small number, right? Uh, right now, they're producing nothing. Um, so you can't immediately say after like a year, oh, we've just got the forecast strong, and now we're going to ramp up, and all of a sudden, it's going to go to X. It doesn't happen that way. Um, so what I thought is interesting is that if you cut, assuming a three-year forecast, even if you were wrong, you'd still be, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to go back up very quickly. So it, you know, it, it right, suggests right. a slower recovery in travel, either because you got your forecast wrong or your forecast was right. Either way, it's a slower recovery just because of the... Yeah, the exactly, plan. that's right. Yeah, if you're um, right, no one flies. If you're wrong, no one can fly because you haven't got the planes. Exactly. So I think it's yeah. that, that sort of situation. A lot of other airlines are also making uh, mm-hmm. similar moves, right? So, yeah, that, that I thought was interesting, and that has implications for, you know, the likes of Flight Center, for example. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's a it's a really it's a tricky one. As you say, I think the coiled spring thing is real. If we can get through this without too much loss of personal wealth, and that's still an open question, right? It may still get bad, but to some degree, we've got some government support for jobs, and hopefully, that means people, as you say, want to get out and go fly. The first thing going to be when lockdowns lifted here, where do you want to go? Right, you're going to go fly to the US that has seemingly at the moment out of control coronavirus, you know, pandemic. You go to Italy or France, probably not. I mean, at some point, even if even if we're allowed to. That, you know, you might desperately want to go and visit the Eiffel Tower, but you're probably going to think twice or the Colosseum or, you know, or the Statue of Liberty. You're going to think, well, hang on, what is the guy next to me on the plane or in the hotel or at the airport? Or, you know, there's always going to be that concern, I think, for a little while in terms of how quickly it comes back. Maybe local travel comes back quicker than, than international because we feel like maybe the countries are under more control than those other destinations. But as you say, not great news for international airlines. If there is a, <laughs> maybe because I'm desperately looking for a silver lining, in the short term, that's probably, I get the opportunity might that if airlines do cut capacity, there actually might be some money to be made by the airlines themselves as and when travel gets back. I and mean, if there's simply insufficient numbers of planes, 
they could probably name their price on tickets for a while, right? Like it's the airline, airline industry has always been plagued by overcapacity. That's what's kept it losing money effectively almost permanently. Every now and again, individual airlines make money, but as an industry, it inevitably makes a loss most years just because of those overcapacity. If, they, if there's one thing in the short to medium term, uh, once assuming they get through this, of course, maybe there's actually money to be made on a per seat basis just because everyone, well, not everyone wants to fly, but a lot of people want to fly and there's simply not enough planes to put them on. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe, maybe they make up for some of that lost on tickets. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Um, yeah, that, that, that is interesting. First. They've, got, they've got to get through yeah. it. <laughs> well, they've got to get through it. Yeah, but that, that's an interesting viewpoint. Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Hey, let's move on to banks. Um, Really, really big news last night came out, uh, I think it was after hours, but it was certainly in this again, which we're recording this Wednesday, so that was Tuesday. By the time listeners listen to this, I'll know what happened next. Um, but, mate, banks are being, APRA's a funny regulator. So the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, God love a complex acronym, is the regulator for our banks and our insurance companies. And APRA has a track record of never actually telling them what to do just saying that they expect that banks and insurers will behave a certain way. Uh, there was the case with uh, uh, back in the day when investment loans were taking off, house prices were getting out of control, and the banks, the APRA said they expect banks to keep investment loan lending to a certain rate, and that did cool the, cool the housing market for a period of time. Now they're saying they expect banks to defer dividends, or if they're going to pay them, they, they expect they will have uh, conducted the appropriate stress tests and talked to APRA, and they expect that those dividends will be meaningfully reduced. So again, this is not a ban in, in a traditional sense, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's close, as, as close as APRA has traditionally got to a ban by basically saying, look, here's what we expect of you. There's a very clear warning there. It's the, um, you know, the, the, the iron fist in a velvet glove story where, you know, as and when the banks ignore, if they were to ignore APRA, I don't think they will. If they were to, either APRA or the government itself would simply say, okay, you guys weren't listening, now it's banned but they get to do it without actually doing it uh, by making their, making their perspective pretty, pretty clear. Now, for Australian shareholders, there are some Australian share portfolios with 30, 40, 50, 60% in banks. Many, many Australian investors who are accumulating shares in the, in, the, in the working phase of their life see banks as businesses that can only ever make them money. And we've talked about that folly before. More concerning for me and for the economy is the lives of self-funded retirees who have probably, again, larger proportions because they've been investing in these things for so long. Banks created phenomenal wealth in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Phenomenal, phenomenal wealth. You know, it's not a case of banks have always been bad investments, but we've been saying for quite a while, don't have too many banks in your portfolio. We have a question about that a bit later. Um, but we run the very real risk of self-funded retirees having a massive, massive cut in their retirement income, simply because if you've got 60% of your portfolio in banks, they were paying four, five, six percent fully franked, if that goes to zero or even down to one or two percent, there's a lot of people who are going to be wondering how they're going to pay the bills. That's a, that's a yeah, you touched on many, many different things. You know, you know before answering the bank question or talking about the bank, you know, one of the things I actually really like the ARPA approach because this, you know, regulation is, regulation being heavy handed is not very useful because then it becomes very prescriptive, right? Mm. And instead, if you are, um, you know, if you have a light touch approach where you basically say, well, you know, this is what we think is good for the banking system. 
and we would like you guys to consider this. I think that's a much, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a nicer approach because you know it still gives people and individual banks uh, uh, plenty of leeway, right? They're not saying don't give dividends. They're saying, well, if you want to give dividends, consider your, you know, balance sheet, cash flow, and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, I think, I, I think it's it's actually very prudent of a prudential uh, body. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that. So we I mean, did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I actually really like that. I like that. I, you know, the New Zealand uh, prudential body basically said no dividends, right? Uh, that's very directive and, and maybe it works uh, too, but I, I, like, I like this, you know, uh, it's oversight approach. Um, yeah, with respect to, so there is this, yeah, so I was thinking about that, a lot of retirees. Now, like, as you said, I think Commonwealth Bank bought listed over $2.50 or something like that. Something like that, uh, yeah, some phenomenal low price, yeah. If you've, you know, got shares at that low price or $2 or whatever, then, you know, you're sitting on a heap of shares which are worth a lot no um, that mate. most most investors at least anecdotally took the dividend reinvestment plan for most of that period of time so not only not only has the share price gone up simply compounded at a phenomenal rate but most of them are buying more shares at two three five ten fifteen twenty twenty five dollars on the way through yeah so i mean i mean one you know so i mean one issue really is going to be that it, the the income is going to be uh hit a lot of these people mm. are going to be the retired people uh, I, I mean, in a way, I feel bad for that cohort altogether, right? Because they've been hit by years of low, low returns on right. like deposits. Um, so then, you know, they flock to shares. A lot of, you know, you park mm-hmm. money in shares. Well, then they disappear. It's, it's a really tough thing. One, I mean, you know, you could sell down a bit of shares, for example. To, I mean, that's your solution, really, to if you, even you need the money, you have to sell down some. Uh, take the capital gains uh, and 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 you know use that as as equivalent of a dividend. Um, yeah, like I mean, traditionally, as we have said before, I mean the banks don't look didn't look to be in a good place, and they're definitely not in a good place today um, for all the obvious reasons. So, yeah, but it's a prudent thing to you. You don't want, you want the banks to be in a good position, so you need the banks to make the right decisions because yeah. it has uh, you know a lot of overarching um, implications for the economy as a whole. So. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's where I I do find myself. It, it it's it really is necessary, but unfortunately necessary in the sense that from a financial system perspective, like easy for me to say retirees should should have to bear some of the burden of coronavirus. I don't have to pay my my bills with my bank dividends, so easy for me to say. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening who who are yelling at me down the down the podcast machine. Um, but the reality simply is, we just you know. If and when a bank would fail or require meaningful government bailouts, the pain that would cause would be worse than delaying dividends for a little while. And again, on a system level, so individual shareholders are going to face very different challenges and choices. But in the context of everything else that's going with coronavirus right now, with everything from social distancing through to businesses being shut down, this is just kind of one of those, again, it feels a bit trite to say it, and I'm not trying to tell anyone to you know suck eggs, but there is just some sense that, that you know, it's just necessary systemically to give us the best chance of getting through the other side. And frankly, we're recovering more quickly, right? And I think even for those bank shareholders, if the banks were tempted to pay out dividends and maybe weaken their own balance sheets, that actually puts their entire investment at more risk. If you mm-hmm. forego a dividend now, as you say, maybe you've got to sell some shares in the short term, which is horrible to have to do. We never want to have to sell capital um, to, to fund income. But in the short term, it gives the banks a much better chance of themselves being successful and, and frankly, surviving. And also the economy, the best chance of having the, the, the least worst outcome given the alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. I underscore that point that you made, right? It's in the interest of the shareholder that the banks actually don't need a bailout because the people yeah. who lose the most in a bailout 
is the shareholder, right? So yeah, it's absolutely you don't want the banks to fail. It's it's in the interest of you know every person who holds the shares. Uh, it's interest of the economy as well. So yeah, I, I think you know it's a prudent thing to do. Maybe they will not cut it altogether. Maybe they'll reduce it. I mean, the, the, those dividends are pretty high. Like if you yeah. think in terms of percentages, right? You know, if you're paying six, seven percent, eight percent. But at one point, I think you know recently I thought the Westpac is like close. If you consider frankly, it's like about ten percent. That's a lot, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It is. And and then for a lot of people, you know, while we wouldn't calculate it this way, right? But if if you you know if you got the shares at if you own a lot of shares, <laughs> you got the yeah, shares at right. like you know, a quarter of the price that you got today, I mean, your yield on the buy price is actually pretty substantial. You probably want a lot of shares. So while the amount coming in is less, um, it's still, for some, it's going to be substantial, right? Yeah, and it would be a big income cut for those people. It just it just is, as you say, mate, you, you rightly point, it's in their best interest that it happens now to make sure they're not wiped out. Because frankly, you talk about flight center and you're dead right. To, to the same extent, if we had a situation where, you know, a bank had to double its share count to raise more capital to bail itself out, either either voluntarily or with a government mandated bailout. Um, that's going to halve your dividends forever, effectively on the same on the same basis, right? So if you're getting, you know, five cents a share now, you're going to be getting two and a half cents a share in future, if on the same level of profit, um, if and when that happens. That's, that's the flight center lesson, as you rightly point out. You're much much better off not requiring a bailout or a capital raise than having to do one. Interesting enough, too, I noticed that APRA did also say if they're going to do it, they should be leaning. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but something like leaning on dividend reinvestment plans. I hope a, a large dividend reinvestment plans would help. Because what that does is it basically gives you more shares instead of cash, which effectively is, is a mini capital raising anyway, but it, it preserves the bank's capital base because they don't have to pay out that cash. I thought, I don't know whether the banks would want to or even are able to mandate that it must be a DRP, uh, but I do think that might be one other way they may try and you, you know continue to pay a dividend of sorts without having to literally pay out most of the cash. That's yeah, interesting. Although that you know, a DRP does is not money in your pocket, right? Which is correct, like, correct, correct. Yeah, so, doesn't help the shareholder. Yeah, you're right. Mate, um, yeah. while we talk about banks, let's go to Fitch for a second, and then we'll come back to, to NAB closings and branches. So, uh, Fitch is a ratings agency. Now, I have only limited um, uh, time for ratings agencies given the given their role in the GFC, but uh, they do remain the arbiters of funding costs because. Uh, generally speaking, if you're a lender and you're lending money to a company, a bank or something else, you're going to charge them a different rate based on their credit rating. The, 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 the safer you are, the less you have to pay an interest, which makes sense, right? That's, and, and, and banks and other lenders use the ratings agencies as a proxy to help them calculate risk and charge interest accordingly. Fitch has downgraded our banks. Perhaps not surprisingly, it's certainly not in the, in the wake of APRA's comment. They're on the same page there. Uh, but it does make life just that little bit harder for the banks. It does, but I mean, that's, that's, those ratings are pretty high. <laughs> they, they, they would be in the top quarter of the banks in the world, right? So, I mean, in terms of ratings. So, I, I, mean, I mean, I think the banks would not have problems raising capital, as that's my view, um, right? It's just, you know, how much and how dilutive and things like that, yeah. right? So, I mean, in, in a way, you know, Fitch is doing kind of the obvious. They downgraded, I think, the New Zealand banks as well, so... Yeah, yeah. Actually, too, I saw yesterday, I can't remember the details, it's just in passing, as you say, about not being able to raise capital. There's actually a new fund being stood up um, this week, I think, or at least the paperwork's going out this week, to actually invest in these capital raisings that people who kind of want to get a fund manager to invest on their behalf in, in effectively, I won't say necessarily all distressed assets, to use your phrase from earlier, mate, but that sense that if there is capital being raised right now, you want to be part of that because, in theory, you imagine you might be getting a pretty good price in some cases. There's actually a fund being stood up for exactly that purpose, which I thought was an interesting turn of events and a sign of the times. 
That's, that's, I think it's interesting, right? I mean, I like that idea. Well, I'm personally not a distressed assets investor, but um, uh, I mean, you know, it, it makes sense, right? You're buying, you're potentially the new shares you own in a bunch of these different things on aggregate are probably going to make you money. Um, right. So if you, there's a way and a vehicle that, you know, with, within reasonable cost that allows you to do that, that actually seems interesting to me. Now, as I said, I, companies that are raising in advance of potential risk, right? There's, there's the flight center that's like, okay, we're going to break if we don't get this money. There are other companies out there. I saw Reese Plumbing this week raise money. And in theory, if you believe their, their press release or their announcement, I guess we have to, they're not saying because we need the money. They're saying to take advantage of opportunities that may come up. In other words, they are literally saying to shareholders, hey, give us some money because if we get a chance, we're going to go buy some stuff on the cheap. Yeah, well, which is true. Like, you know, if, if, you, if your business, business is well positioned, you can actually buy out someone who is distressed. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, that that, that that's interesting. I, I, I like the distressed asset idea. Like, I mean, you know, if you have a bunch of distressed assets you're buying, you know, you could actually technically make money on them, uh, um, you know, at least as a group. But, yeah, I, there's a lot of capital raising happening and potentially many more. Really, really is. And, and be so careful, right? We're not saying everyone is worth investing in necessarily either. No, no. Mike, shall we get into the mailbag? Yeah, well, what I, was, I was going to say one quick thing, right? BOQ yeah, this morning basically announced that they are not paying the dividend, right? There so you BOQ go. Yeah. First first one. Uh, yeah, now they had their own issues, but I mean, their first one, the first cap <laughs> of the ranks to say that you're not paying the <laughs> dividend. Yeah. I, part of me actually wonders, so I'll, I'll go and hand on yours. Part of me wonders if the banks aren't secretly pleased at least a little bit that the APRA is making them stop. Because to some degree, we know the dividend policies were a little bit. Uh, aggressive and woe beside any bank CEO who says, actually, guys, this isn't sustainable. We're just going to cut our dividends to be more prudent. I mean, that, that's maybe they should have always, but no one was prepared to. Mm-hmm. Get, being forced to rebase to zero does mean that moving forward, the banks have their own. We saw the resource companies do this. Now they weren't forced to, but we know an oil price crash way back in the day, BHB and Rio Fortescue had to kind of say, all right, fine, we'll go. We're not going to arbitrarily pay the same amount every year. We're going to we're going to change our dividend policy. So circumstances made them. In this case, the regulators kind of making them go to zero or pretty close to it out of that to some degree hopefully might be they get a chance to rebase without having to really annoy anyone too directly by coming out and saying okay well because of that we're now going to reassess maybe they start paying a little bit less than they were in the past that's true that, and, that's, that, and that would be to their advantage which is good <laughs> again bad for people who want the income per year but probably get, leaves them with stronger businesses in their portfolios yeah, exactly exactly yeah. We were going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about uh, NAB closing its branches. I'll just quickly say I think they said it's not cost cutting. Uh, I'm going to call Balderdash on that one. And uh, I have said for a while, I, I, tw- I don't know if I said the podcast, I've certainly tweeted before, I expected the next, before Corona, of course, the next round of bank um, cost cutting needed to be branch closures because we're not using them as much as we were. Um, and frankly, in a system that wasn't growing very fast, now it's in decline, of course, but it wasn't growing very fast. If you want to get growth, you need to attract the costs. And I don't know about you, mate. Last time I was in a branch was, I don't know how many years ago, but I have to, at some point, they were going to have to go through a, range, a round of branch closures. I think that's even more inevitable now as a result of what we're going through. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, it's hard to, again, as you said, know whether it's cost cutting or, you know, just uh, corona management, but yeah. Yeah, it could be a mix of both. Um, we'll see if they reopen. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Hey, time for the mailbag, our favourite segment and some of our um, 
It's my members' favourite segment as well. Question from Brad, mate. Hi, Scott and Doc. I've been reading your post for the last couple of days. Interesting times ahead. This was sent a few days ago, so we're certainly into those interesting times. If you have time, what are your thoughts on the below? I have recently changed my super to cash to stop the bleeding. Seeing I've lost about 15 grand in the last month. I'll need to watch it and try to get back in before the growth hits, but I know that's always a risk. What are your thoughts on changing to cash? And then he says, secondly, I don't plan on withdrawing any super, but thinking outside the box, is it an option to withdraw that money and then use it towards a deposit on property? Is there an opportunity to take advantage of a fall in the property market? Hopefully this gets to you. Cheers, Brad. It did, Brad. Uh, Doc, so first things first, Brad's gone mm. to cash to stop the bleeding. What do you reckon, mate? Is that, is that the right strategy and what should you do? We can't tell Brad what he should do, of course, but um, generally, general advice only is what we can do. What should yeah. someone in Brad's position do? Should they be in cash or should they be in shares? Well, like, I mean, so generally speaking, I mean, I'll answer from portfolio point of view. Like, that's the equivalent of saying that I put all my portfolio in cash, um, yep. which I haven't done. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's so, a good sign. Okay. So, so my, my point of view is really like, I mean, there's going to be ups and downs in the market. If you basically stay invested, um, if you've got cash on the side that you can invest, you've got more cap, capital available, you invest that. Um, you know, now is a good time to invest some of that capital. Uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, the, the, the problem with trying to go cash is when do you, you know, there's a lot of things here, right? Did you go cool cash after the market fell 20%, 30%? Yeah, yeah. Right? If you went to cash after market fell 30%, then well, you know, maybe you are basically going out at the bottom, assuming that is the bottom, but let's say you're going out at a much lower yeah. price and then you're probably going to the bottom, back. that's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, without knowing what the bottom is, but let's say the market fell 30% and you got, went out at 30%, then you went back up, you know, when the market went up another 20%. <laughs> so in fact, you actually lost money in the process, right? Yeah. Uh, by not staying invested. So no, that's not my preferred strategy unless you had some way of knowing exactly when you know if you could if you if if i could go back in time and i had my <laughs> then i would have sold everything on february 15th yes exactly. <laughs> and then i would wait uh until whenever which i would again know in, in the future uh <laughs> when to buy and then i'll buy that might you know that might work as a strategy but because you don't have that crystal ball uh, I can't do it. So uh, I, I, would, I, I look forward to yeah. I look forward to next year receiving the uh, an Iban Mahati 2020 investment guide released, yeah. released in 2021. That'll be that'll be good reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I completely agree, Brad. And the other thing is, Brad says he, he sold it after a loss to stop the bleeding. Um, I completely get it, Brad. Like we both get it. We know we know investing can be painful. Doc mentioned that at the very top. Um, speaking of which, though, I will. Re- you know, and I didn't mean to do this at the front, at the front, but it kind of a nice way to do it. Um, as Joe Mega said to us the other day, um, the market was up again at that point about nineteen percent from its falls so at its bottom. So, worrying cash at some point on the way down, and you missed that recovery, you're probably already looking at you know losses both ways. You've locked in a loss and you missed the gain. Um, now it could still fall further. We don't. We just don't know, right? And and that's the, the, the we don't know bit. The crystal ball bit, as you said, mate. That's exactly why I think for most, if not all, investors being predominantly or, or completely invested at all times is the smartest thing to do because yeah, you, you cop, you cop these losses. Yeah. Again, look back at your point about crystal ball, mate, look back to the GFC, right? I'll go back in time. You can see what happened, how it happened, but more importantly, you can see that after all of that, the market went on to set new highs and it always does. It always has. Um, I, I understand Brad completely that mate, the stress and the, the grief of, of seeing your portfolio lose money. You're losing, you know, five figures, um, which is, you know, really, really hard to take. 
The reality though is that unless the market fails to regain those previous highs, trying to pick the bottom is, is a very, very fraught exercise. Now maybe you get it right, maybe you get lucky, maybe you get unlucky. Either way, it's a bit like you said earlier, mate, about the get rich slowly, right? Like if you can, if you can get rich slowly by simply <laughs> doing the simple things, staying invested, as opposed to trying to be too clever and maybe doing better or maybe doing worse, the odds just aren't in your favor, I don't think, of, of getting that right. That's right. I, I, I'll add one more thing, actually. It, it occurred to me when you were talking about this, um, mm. that suppose, you know, your super is actually feeding off, uh, say, from a paycheck every, every, every two weeks, right? So there's money yeah, coming yeah. in. It's also sitting in cash. Effectively, yeah. in, in fact, one of the brilliant things about being in super and, you know, and that being, say, managed by a fund is mm. the money is coming in and it's getting invested. It's basically dollar cost averaging, right? So right now you're also not... Dollar, yeah, average. yeah. Uh, and which basically means that, you know, you miss out on investing at the bottoms or the lower prices, right? If you keep waiting, waiting, waiting. So, um, yeah, that's a big disadvantage when you go to cash because, you know, it's all going to sit in cash and you're going to earn nothing really on it right now. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's my very general view on it. Um, without I, I completely agree. Uh, hey, mate, take your money out of super to buy property. Would you be doing that right now? So, I mean, you... <laughs> You can buy a property, I guess, but you'd have to, I think, create an SMSF, right? That was be my understanding. You, you I wonder if he's talking about the 20 grand that the government's allowing people to take out of their super. I wonder if he's maybe referring to that bit. Yeah, but well, well, uh, without knowing without knowing the full details, because for, yeah. to take yeah. the 20 grand out, I think yep. there are some conditions you need to meet, right? So correct, correct. Know, yep. uh, and even then, my suggestion would be that the 20 grand you should take out absolutely as the last resort thing, right? Because this is money meant for, you know, this is money meant for retirement, right? I mean, it's very easy to take the money now and spend it. So, <laughs> and then that money's gone basically, right? So, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's very counter to the idea of retirement. This is money meant for future. Um, so no, I wouldn't actually, I mean, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't take the 20 grand and put it into investment and I wouldn't, and I, I mean, yeah, if you want to do, if you want to invest in property because you think the property prices are going to do well, that's a different question altogether. But then that requires, I think, uh, taking, you know, basically taking control of your super. That then raises other questions, right? You know, I mean, you own shares, you're basically effectively diversified because you potentially own lots of different businesses. If you're going to buy a property, yep. you're to, you know, you're probably going to buy one property, maybe two, depending upon your super yeah. size, but then you are diversified across two assets, <laughs> which are, you know, oh, again, I, I, I think property as a, as a super is, I think it's, it's really meant for specialized cases, right? In, in certain cases, it makes sense, but in other cases, it's not really a diversified way of, you know, uh, managing uh, your investment portfolio for retirement, right? I mean, it, it is really not diversified if you own one or two properties, right? So, Especially anyway, because if people are taking money out of super, if it's in super, at least it's an investment. If they're taking out of super to buy a property, they're probably buying a home, which is, is great for everybody, but it means you're kind of stealing from your retirement savings at some level, right? Yeah. Like, uh, the t- buying personal home, I mean, you know, like that's a different question. That's an affordability question to me to a large extent. Like, yeah. you know, you can't buy, you don't have money right now and you get, you can take this 20,000, use it against a deposit. Maybe that's an interesting, I mean, Everybody needs a home, right? That's a different question altogether. Yeah. But, but taking the money and buying investment property is a different question because then you change, you change, you go from diversified assets to basically one Correct. asset. Correct. So, 
I, I have torn feelings about buying a personal home if you could out of super, largely because there is value to having a home in which you're gonna live for 30, 40 years. That there's, 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 there's monetary value to it. And then there is, of course, uh, uh, you know, emotional <laughs> quotient value to it, which is, which is, yeah, important. yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and, you know, if that helps with, with, with affordability, that's a different thing altogether. So, but I have no opinion as such. Again, you know, retirement money should be for retirement, is, is my large, higher level principle view. Um, it's I wouldn't cut it if I can. Good advice, Matt. Last question. Should we do a Marvag like this weekend, you reckon? Yeah, why not? We're doing it remotely. Right, there remotely. you go. Special, yeah, remote, a remote special bonus mailbag episode. Try saying that three times quickly. Look forward to that. In the meantime, mate, one more question before you sign off for today. Give our this is a little bit of taste of what might come on Sunday. Um, question about capital raisings, mate. I like this question. So Michael West, the ex-Fairfax Journal, has got his own website, and he's reporting that Stephen Main, who is a uh, shareholder activist, self, self-described in some cases, um, is complaining that small shareholders are being ripped off by bankers in a rash of emergency capital raisings. In other words, he's saying that right now, when there's when there's money to be raised, asking you and me for a couple of grand each, that's tough work. You can simply go to a preferred institutional shareholder, go to a fund and say, hey, how about you tip us in a couple hundred million dollars over here? I'll give you a special, a special deal. They get... The institutions get, we saw this during the GFC, by the way, as well. The institutions get a really nice little sweetheart deal. They get to buy as much as they want to. Us little shareholders are limited to a bit of a nibble around the edges. We're being diluted by the fact the instos are being given first, pretty much, you know, first call on how much cash the company wants. What do you reckon, mate? Are we being ripped off by that? Is there a problem here or is Stephen Mann bucking up the wrong tree? Well, I mean... Um, Question from Jono, by the way. Thank you, Jono. Yeah, so some of these entitlement offers are not SPPs, right? So SPP being share placement plans are typically capped at $15,000, right? So the entitlement offers are not, I mean, in my view, they are pretty fair because everybody who owns a share gets X number of shares to buy. I mean, maybe it's not proportionately, uh, I mean, if you have a placement component and a rights component, maybe it's not. I think that's exactly what Superman's talking about here is that you're right, the placement is absolutely fair per share owned. But when they're yeah. raising on top of that, some special little, you know, placements to institutional shareholders to kind of top it up, or in some cases, even more than the placement itself, yeah. it doesn't feel fair. You know, if I, if I said to you, look, I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell, I'm going to raise more shares in your home. Uh, you can you can apply for some of them, but I'm actually going to sell off a portion of your home to someone else without you having a, a chance to actually participate. Doesn't doesn't feel great to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have mixed feelings on that. You know, that's, 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 that, so that goes back to the point I was trying to make about, you know, high quality and balance sheets, right? I mean, this is where all of these things matter. Um, the, the issue would be that for, think about the, you know, if I said, like, you know, I'll put myself and say the flight center shoes, right? You know, my business is going broke by the day. I can't really afford to now, you know, go after <laughs> my share base, which is probably 40% retail, 30% this, some super funds, etc., and then hope that I'm going to get a consensus and then I'm going to get money to raise, then come to get target price, you have to act fast, right? Now, right. this is extraordinary, right? Because the company's shares are suspended for three weeks. So now, you know, we invest in liquid assets because we think they're liquid, but they're suspended for a couple of weeks or three weeks or whatever. The company is really working frenetically at that time trying to work up a way to raise money. Mm. You, you have no choice but to go to deep pockets, that's hard. I mean, you just, this is not, 
the capital markets exist, but they are, you know, in this point, the people with deep pockets are one, the ones who are going to be basically say, well, this is how much I'm going to pay, right? And, and, and here's the other problem, right? You can go to retail shareholders and say, I want to, you to pay this much. They might say no, or they may not have the money to give, right? And that's the other fact, you know, people may not have the money to give. So, I mean, and we, we know that from, from a fact that many of these shareholders, share uh, capital raises, they were, you know, if you, if you just dialing back to the Webjet one, initially part of the rights issues were actually not underwritten. So underwritten means the people who are putting the rights issue there, they are committing to buy any shortfall, right? The part of it was not underwritten because they were not sure. <laughs> they could not give the promise <laughs> that we are going to buy all of this stuff because we, we don't know what the, you know, the shareholders are going to do. When they got Bain come in as, as a backer, that gave them confidence that, okay, this might get, you know, be, be taken over. And then it became a, a underwritten. So it's a confidence issue, right? And you can't get consensus confidence being built with. So yeah, I don't, you know, it's part of the deal of being a small shareholder. Um, you know, you, and these are extraordinary times. And the, I, I just don't think there's a, there's a way out. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. The phrase I had in my head was unfair but necessary. Um, there, there is simply no alternative. If you want your company to survive, they're going to have to do those sweetheart deals to make sure they can definitely raise the cash they want. The alternative, even for small shareholders, if they don't raise that cash, you're in, you're in a whole lot of trouble anyway. Even if you, so, you know, given given we are in a situation where you want to find the least worst option, I completely agree with Stephen May. It is massively unfair. It's also just entirely necessary, and that's where we find ourselves. Yeah, the the eight dollar uh, capital placement for flight center could be a three dollar capital placement, basically, exactly. right? Exactly. And, and or, or maybe it doesn't happen at all, as you say, and then yeah. you know they, they got they got no cash on, we're all in trouble. So that that's so, yeah, yeah, massively unfair. But I, I don't see how a company could or should do anything, frankly, different. So it's in that it's in that situation. The, the like, word, before we I go, think, hang on, hang on. I have one thing to say. You know, anybody who Please. writes about unfair, you know, and most of the time, but I think these are these are you know, in many ways, first of all, problems where. Um, we are talking about unfairness, right? I mean, you know, the world is actually not fair, right? <laughs> Most yeah, of the time, yeah. the world is not fair. And, and in these sort of situations, you know, it probably doesn't matter. I think, you know, we take the, the least, you know, painful option, which is what these guys do. So, least worst, I yeah. would... Before we go, mate, I want to tell people they can join your Motley Fool investment service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. And they can do so by getting a pretty nice little deal. Speaking of good deals, this is both fair and reasonable because you get to join Doc's service, Extreme Opportunities for, frankly, a silly cheap price. Um, Doc has said before many, many times he thinks it should be more expensive. I agree with him. Our bosses don't agree, though. So the good news is you as listeners get the opportunity to join EO for a pretty, pretty good deal. A couple of bucks a week, I think, something like that. I think there's a there's a there's something going on between you and the bosses who are setting the prices. You know, you're just trying to sell my service for cheap. <laughs> Mate, is honestly, if, if, even if that was true, our listeners are the winners. You can go to fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast and join Extreme Opportunities for, as I said, a couple of bucks a week, less than or half the price of a cup of coffee. Even if you could go and have one at a cafe, which you can't. So how about you put some of that cafe money to good use? Go and buy a takeaway coffee when you can. Support your locals, but also join us at Extreme Opportunities. Join Doc at Extreme Opportunities. He and Kevin run a wonderful service looking for the next big winners on the ASX. I think you want to have a have a look at that one, as I said, for a couple of bucks a week. Mate, it doesn't get cheaper than that, does it? All right, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Make sure you do subscribe because that way you won't miss this Sunday's special mailbag episode. And if you like what we're doing, 
give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Tell your friends. Leave us a review. Say some nice things because if you're enjoying it, there's every chance someone else will too. And if we're helping you be a little bit better with your finances and with your investing, then I reckon your friends will thank you for putting them onto us as well. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and a little offer as well by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.